This is Soul Stories, where we tell real life stories that, yeah, touch your soul. I'm Rabbi Shlomo Landau. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to episode two. It was a pitiful sight as the Jews of a small town in Poland were viciously marched outside of the town's limits. Men, women, children, babies, dragging just one case. That's all the Nazis had allowed them to bring with them as they were being resettled. The Nazis told them to take the most important objects, the most precious and valuable objects. They would need them for the new life that they were about to begin. As the Jews marched to the outskirts of the town, the local Polish population followed with glee, with sinister joy. Finally, their town would be Judenrein. It would be free of the Jews that had lived there for over 500 years. At one point, the Nazi made the column stop. They ordered the Jews to deposit all their valuables, their personal belongings, at the side of the road in a large pile. The trucks would be coming, they said. They would take them to the final destination. And then, in a moment of irony, the Nazi commander turned to the local Poles and said, My dear partners, we share something in common. We have a common goal. Here, help yourself to the spoils. Help yourself to the booty of the Jewish community. Take the valuables. It's yours. Everybody did. The Poles attacked the pile viciously, clawing to try to get the most valuable objects. But two women, two relatively young women, had their eyes on something more valuable. You see, at the end of this sorrowful column was a young woman wearing a long, ankle-length, beautiful fur coat. They wanted that coat, and they were pretty sure that there probably were valuables in the pockets and maybe even in the lining of that coat. They ran behind the column. They knocked the woman to the ground. They ripped off her fur coat. She screamed bloody murder. Let go of my coat. Let go of my coat. They kicked her over. The Nazi drew his gun and said, give her your fur coat. They dragged the fur coat away to the side of the road. They began to go through the pockets. Sure enough, jewelry, diamond rings, necklaces. They looked at the inside. There were some inside pockets a pair of valuable silver candlesticks, a kiddish cup. But as they traced their hands down the lining of the long fur coat, what they found near the bottom of the coat made them shudder. There was a small little zippered pocket, and in the pocket was something that was moving. It was a brand new born baby girl. Couldn't have been more than a few days old. Now what? They wanted the fur coat. They wanted the valuables. But what with this little baby? One of the women turned to the other and said to her, My friend, listen, I'll make you a deal. You can have the gold and the diamonds. You can have the jewelry. I've never had a child of my own. I always wanted a child. Promise me that you will never breathe a word to anybody that I am adopting a Jewish child, and I will raise this child as my own. If so, you can have all the valuables, deal or no deal. Her friend said for sure. She took the child home, and she raised this little girl as her own. She showered her with love and with care, and the young girl grew and flourished. First, she was an elementary school girl, extraordinarily bright, perhaps beyond all the Polish school, school girls in her class, and then into high school, where she excelled at science, at biology. She went to college and enrolled in pre-med. Eventually, she went to medical school, graduated at the top of her class, did a residency, and then a fellowship in pediatrics, and slowly but surely became one of Poland's greatest pediatric specialists. She was renowned 
throughout the country and beyond. Her practice grew, her practice flourished, and she was successful beyond anyone's expectations. Her mother had so much nachas, so much pride and joy from her daughter and her incredible accomplishments. When her mother was old, she passed away suddenly, and the young doctor was left there to mourn for her mother. And as she was sitting in her home one day, with tears rolling down her face, grieving and mourning her mother, there was a knock at the door. She opened the door, and standing at the door was an old Polish woman that she thought she recognized at some point in her life. The woman said, can I come in? There's something important I must share with you. Sure, she said. She sat down and she says, you know, your mother and I, we were friends from when we were little girls. But there's something your mother never told you. And now that she's dead, I can't go to my grave with the secret on my conscience. And she shared with her the truth. You're not her child, she said. You're not her biological child. She shared the whole story. You're a Jid, she said. You're a Jew. The doctor, the pediatric specialist, looked on in disbelief. Herself? A Jew? No way. She was a Pole, just like her mom. Is that even possible? She looked at the old Polish woman and she said to her, you've lost your mind. You don't know what you're saying. You're foolish. You're old. No, she said, and I can prove it. If you go upstairs to your mother's bedroom, she has a jewelry box. Take out all the jewelry. Look underneath all the compartments and you'll find something that will prove beyond any shadow of doubt that you're a Jew. What, she says, what should I be looking for? She says, when we found you at the bottom of that fur coat, there was a tiny gold locket around your neck. And there was a tiny little pendant at the end of the gold locket with strange letters, perhaps Jew letters. Go, you'll find it, and you'll see that my story will be verified. She ran upstairs. She went into her mother's room. She emptied out the jewelry box. And at the bottom of the jewelry box, underneath all the compartments, she found a little tiny necklace with a tiny little pendant with strange letters. And she knew in her heart of hearts that what the old Polish woman was saying was true beyond any shadow of doubt. She spent the next weeks and months walking around in a trance. A Jew, not her mother, her whole world had collapsed upon her. But she still focused on her career and tried to do her best. The secret laid very heavily on her, and every time that she took the necklace with the pendant, she felt a certain connection to it. So much so that she went to a jeweler, she had the chain elongated, she began to wear the chain with the pendant underneath her blouse so nobody would see it, but on top of her heart where she felt it belonged. One day she was vacationing abroad when she was walking down one of the main streets and she saw two Jewish boys, two yeshiva bachrim. She knew they were Jewish, she'd seen them on TV. She went over to the boys and she said, do you speak English? They do, they said. How can we help you? She says, don't be afraid. I need to ask you an important question. She shared with them her entire story. She pulled out the necklace with the pendant. And she said to them, tell me, what do these letters say? They smiled and they said, it's your name. Your name is Chana. Ches Nun Hey. Now what, she said, I'm Jewish. What do I do? Where do I go? We don't know, they said. We're just yeshiva boys. We're just young men. There's no way in the world that we have anything to tell you. But you know what? Our rabbi, back in the United States, he's a brilliant man. And you know what? He can perhaps advise you. Can we take your contact information down? Maybe we'll take your contact information, and if our rabbi has something smart to say, we'll send it to you. We'll call you. We'll send you a letter, and you'll know exactly what to do. She waited anxiously until they would come back, and come back they did. And they sent her a letter, and the letter said they'd spoken to their rabbi. 
the rabbi advised that she travel to Israel. There was a need for pediatric specialists in Israel. Perhaps she can figure something out professionally. And when she was in Israel, who knew? Who knows, maybe, somehow, some way, she could figure out more about her personal identity. She liked the idea. She took a small break from her job. She traveled to Israel. She toured the country, the Kaisala Maravi, the Western Wall, north to Charmon, south to Eilat. And on her last few days there, she also visited many of the hospitals. On her last day there, she visited Hadassah Hospital in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. She met with the head of pediatrics, and they were beyond impressed at her medical acumen. And on the spot, they offered her a job. She said she needed time to think about it. She went back to Poland, but she couldn't sleep at night. She knew she belonged in Israel. She quit her job. She moved to Israel. She joined Hadassah Medical Center and slowly but surely became a very successful pediatric specialist in Israel. At the same time, her soul was thirsting for more about her past. And she enrolled in a midrashah, in a seminary for ladies learning to learn more about their background and their heritage. And she began to learn about Yiddishkeit, about Judaism. And it was like putting a fish into water. She loved it and she drank it thirstily. A few years passed. She met a wonderful young man of Alchuva, somebody who too had not grown up with religious roots, but began to love and care about observance. And they established a wonderful, beautiful home. And they had children and life was perfect. One day, she left the children at home with a babysitter and her and her husband went to the city center to have some coffee, to have some pastries, and spend a little bit of personal time, a little bit of me time with one another. As they were sitting in a cafe, sipping delicious Israeli coffee and munching on wonderful pastries, all of a sudden they heard the dreadful sound of a terrible explosion. It was the infamous Sabaro bus bombing, where terrorists walked into a pizza parlor in the center of Yerushalayim with an explosive vest packed with ball bearings and, and nails dipped in rat poisoning to maximize the damage. And he blew himself up, self up, killing and maiming dozens. She looked at her husband and she said to him, go home to the children. I am going to be Cholim Hospital, which literally was one block from the site of the explosion. She ran into Cholim Hospital, where a very hairy triage had been sent up, set up. She identified herself as a pediatric surgeon and began to administer care to the many children that were injured in this horrific, barbaric suicide bombing. As she's going from patient to patient, all of a sudden, the doors of the triage burst open, and an old man walks in, shrieking, Where's my granddaughter? Where's my granddaughter? He had a distinctly European accent, and he was looking desperately for her granddaughter. She went over to him, and she said, Please leave here. We can't administer care when there's fam panicked family members here. Please go away. No, he said, my granddaughter, I took her out for some pizza and she disappeared in the smoke and in the terrible explosion. Please, please, find me my granddaughter. She looked at the man and she said, calm down, sir. Standing here is just going to make it worse. What does your granddaughter look like? He gave her some identifying symbols. She has blonde hair. She has fair complexion. She says she may not even be recognizable. Is there anything that it could identify her? She says, yes, she's wearing a beautiful gold locket with Hebrew name and it had her name on it. If you find it, please let me know. She went, she sent the man out, and she went, she continued from patient to patient administering care. And she came before a little girl, a girl that was pretty badly injured but still alive. She cut away her blouse to administer care, and sure enough, there was this particular necklace with a name pendant on it. Wonderful, she thought to herself. I can go outside and tell the man that his granddaughter is alive. 
But as she looked at the pendant, and as she cleaned off some of the ash and soot on it, her heart stopped. The pendant was identical to the one that she was wearing around her neck, just with a different name. As in a trance, she walked out to the old man and she said to him, Who is this? He said, It's my granddaughter. Is she alive? Yes, she said. God willing, she'll be okay. But let me ask you a question. That necklace, that pendant, where'd you get that from? The man sighed. He said, I made it. I'm a goldsmith. It's unique. It's the only one in the world. And then he sighed and said, There used to be another one. It was on my little daughter, and a tear escaped his eye. But the Nazis, the Poles, they took her. She didn't survive the war, but at least one of my daughters did, and this is her daughter right here. She looked at the old man. She reached beneath her shirt. She pulled out the old pendant, and she showed it to him. Just one word escaped the old man's throat. Chana, my daughter! He fell on her shoulders, a father that had found his long-lost daughter, and a daughter that had found the father that she never even knew existed. Amongst the horror, the carnage, amongst the terror, amongst the utter destruction of that suicide bomber, a brand new life of two people, a father and a daughter began again. She found the family that she never had, her siblings, her parents, her nephews, and her nieces, and she finally found where she belonged. You hear a story like this, you can brush it off. It's a coincidence. Stuff happens. But as Jewish people, we know that there is a conductor, a master conductor, that is putting the pieces together. And sometimes it could take 50 or 60 years. And sometimes it could be amongst the terrible, most horrific event. But the conductor knows exactly what he's doing. And on that horrific day, there was a silver lining as the conductor brought together two intricate pieces of his vast orchestra, a father and a daughter that had never seen each other, at least not consciously. Unbelievable. The Yad Hashem, the hand of God. But this story isn't the only story that I know that spans 50 years. And over the 50 years, perhaps the hand of God was hidden. But now, all of a sudden, we saw it. There's another amazing story that I must share with you when we're talking about this. And that is the story of Jacob Schiff. Jacob Schiff was born in Germany. He was a young man born to a family, a prolific German family, many rabbis in his genealogy, born at the end of the 1800s, and eventually moved to the United States where he got a job in finance and was very, very successful. But while he was successful, he began to realize the plight of his Jewish brothers and sisters around the world, particularly his brothers and sisters in Russia, which was a virulently anti-Semitic country in those days, the times of the Kishin of pogroms, where Jewish people were massacred mercilessly and their blood spilled and no one did anything. Jewish blood was free. It was cheap. And whoever wanted to spill it, there was no accountability. And Jacob Schiff's blood boiled when he saw how the Russians treated his brothers and his sisters across the pond. Jacob slowly but surely became incredibly successful. And Jacob became one of the United States' most wealthy individuals. He was a philanthropic fellow, a community leader, and he did 
amazingly well in the stock market and the financial world in general. One of the things that Jacob Schiff was most well known for was financing an entire war. You see, the Japanese and the Russians were fighting one another, were bickering with one another. The Russians threatened the Japanese that they would destroy those monkeys in just a day all the way in the south of Russia in the port of Vladivostok. And the truth is they were able to, the Japanese army was outdated, the Russians were a modern world superpower. But when Jacob Schiff heard about this, the memories of his hatred to the Russians rose to the surface and he hoped that perhaps at this juncture he could have his revenge against the Russians. He made a meeting with the ambassador to Japan in Washington, D.C., and he shared with him, he says, if somehow you and the Russians go to war, they will decimate the Japanese. It's going to be a massacre. You have to do something to delay the war and somehow rearm yourselves, retrain and re-equip. That's the only shot you have. The Japanese ambassador said, but we have nothing. We have no arms. We have no equipment. There's nothing we can do. Jacob Schiff said, I have a proposal for you. I can help you finance a war against the Russians. And Jacob Schiff came up with $200 million in the early 1900s. That is the equivalent of $4.5 billion in today's standards. And he equipped and financed the war with the most current arms and the most current artillery and the most current fighting fighting methods. The Japanese were, were able to delay the war and when they did ultimately have a war with Russia in the port of Vladivostok, they decimated and destroyed. They totally wiped out the entire Russian navy in those ports and perhaps one of the most humiliating defeats of the Russian superpower took place because of the incredible financial resources of Jacob Schiff. Well, sounds like a cool story. A wealthy Jew finances a war, has revenge on the anti-Semitic Russians, and it seems like the story is over, and perhaps it was. But let me fast forward many years later. About 30 years ago or so, the personal diary of the emperor of Japan, Hirohito, during World War II was declassified. And a secret, something that had been bothering historians for decades, came to light. You see, no one really understood why it was that the emperor of Japan, a member of the Axis of Evil and a close ally of Hitler, never killed out and annihilated the Jews in Japan. Hitler pushed the emperor countless times. He shared with him that to be a member of the Axis, he, the Jews must be must be annihilated. He had to destroy the Jews, yet somehow the emperor kept pushing it off, kept delaying it, and he never killed the Jews of Japan. No one knew why until they read one journal entry in the diary of the emperor, and here is what he wrote. He says, I was a young private in the Japanese army by the Russo-Japanese War when one Jewish man from across the ocean, a man by the name of Jacob Schiff, arranged $200 million, $4.5 billion for our country, and we were victorious. The amazing Japanese empire was victorious when everyone thought that we would go down. He said to himself, if one Jew on the other side of the world hated the Russians because they persecuted his Jewish brothers and sisters, imagine, he said, 
if I persecute the Jews of Japan during World War II, what the American Jewish community will do, we will lose the war because of that. Totally illogical, totally irrational. Yet in his mind, the memory of the power of a Jew and of the incredible solidarity that one Jew had to Jews he'd never met was so strong in his mind that he refused to go after the Jewish community. And thus, thousands, tens of thousands of Jews in Japan survived the war, including the Mir Yeshiva. They relocated to Israel, the United States, and other places. And today, there are probably hundreds of thousands of descendants, if not millions, of those Jews that the emperor saved and did not, did not liquidate during World War II. Why? Because of a memory as a young private of one Jewish person on the other side of the world that cared about his brothers and sisters. Remarkable story. Fascinating. So many years had passed from the moment that he was a private until he became the emperor. Yet somehow the master conductor, the Almighty himself, had all the pieces of the orchestra exactly where they needed to be to save the Jewish community of Japan and make sure that the Mir Yeshiva and many Torah scholars and many very successful and wonderful Jewish people would have a shot at rebuilding the Jewish community. You know, sometimes it takes 30 or 40 or 50 or even 60 years to see the hand of Hashem, to see how the conductor knows exactly what he's doing. But other times, we see it quickly. We just need to open our eyes. We need to look in the rearview mirror of life. And all of a sudden, we could see the Yad Hashem, we could see the hand of God. That's my challenge to you. Look at your own lives. Look in the rearview mirror. Open your eyes and you'll see that the master conductor knows exactly what he's doing, that each instrument in his beautiful philharmonic orchestra is exactly where it has to be, and that the beautiful symphony of the world of Hashem is constantly piping the most amazing music. Let's open our eyes, let's open our ears, let's open our hearts, and we'll see the incredible hand of Hashem in each and every one of our lives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your family and friends. If you loved it, why not sponsor an episode? Contact sponsor at kolatorakula.com. That's sponsor at K-O-L-H-A-T-O-R-A-H-K-U-L-A-H.com. Until next time.